The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today, we're happy to welcome Jason Salim. Jason is an assistant professor with the Department of Industrial Engineering at the J.B. Speed School of Engineering at the University of Louisville. He's also the director of Center for Ergonomics there. Uh, Jason received his Ph.D. from the Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering at Virginia Tech in 2003, where he specialized in human factors engineering and ergonomics. Before joining the University of Louisville, Jason spent several years conducting human factors research for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. While working for the VA, he was awarded a Research Career Development Award. Jason's research interests include the integration of human factors engineering and ergonomics with the development of clinical information systems, innovation for next-generation electronic health records and health information technology to support higher quality care and safety, provider-patient interaction with respect to exam room computing, and the coordination of multiple computing devices in a healthcare setting. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So I wanted to start off and ask about um, your work as a multi-methods researcher. I think that's one of the things you are known for, is your ability to leverage qualitative and quantitative methods from different traditions. So I see you borrowing from industrial engineering, user experience, naturalistic decision-making traditions. And I wondered if you just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in combining methods and research traditions in this way. Sure, I'd be happy to. So when I was a grad student at Virginia Tech, um, gosh, this was back uh, 1998 through 2003, I did my master's and PhD at Virginia Tech. And the department there of industrial and systems engineering, where I was based, is a very traditional industrial and systems engineering department. And I became very interested in, in taking courses from other departments and trying to integrate some of those concepts into my dissertation. So for example, I took a, a computer science course with Jack Carroll uh, from the computer science department there. I think it was models and theories of human computer interaction and he exposed me to things like distributed cognition theory. And uh, so I, I uh, integrated distributed cognition theory with my uh, dissertation research. Um, and my advisor was Brian Kleiner. And uh, so he's into macro ergonomics. And so uh, the light bulb went off in my head because in macro ergonomics, is based on socio-technical systems theory and takes a top-down approach to interface design. The notion that you can't have good interface design at the micro level without understanding those greater organizational influences of the socio-technical system. And distributed cognition theory is like bottom-up and it, it expands the unit of analysis from one human and one interface to where the unit of analysis is is a, a small socio-technical system. And I thought these 
ideas are completely compatible. And so I started pulling in, uh, you know, those types of naturalistic decision-making um, concepts into my own very traditional industrial engineering uh, work. So that's, that's how I really became interested in, in uh, being a multi-method researcher. So even, even as a grad student, you, you had those leanings. Yeah, that's where it all started. In fact, um, it's, it's just uh, inherent within me, I think. I remember um, when I was excited about integrating, you know, these different things like distributed cognition theory. And my advisor uh, was like, well, they were tolerant of it. But he said, you know, your committee is going to pass you on the quantitative parts of your dissertation. Uh, so, um, so that was an interesting experience. Yeah. Very interesting. Cool. So, um, so I know that in, uh, in the first part of your career, you worked for the uh, VA, the Veterans Health Administration and did very applied research. You were traveling all over the country and visiting VA hospitals and, and primary care clinics and doing observations and really kind of roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty kind of field research. Um, and then uh, in more recent years, you took a tenure track position at the University of Louisville. And I wondered if you have any advice or just reflections on that transition from uh, super applied work to, to uh, academia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the, the first, uh, my first years with the VA was, was a, uh, uh, actually a research intensive position. And, and I should mention that's where, that's where I first met, met you and, uh, Emily Patterson, who is, uh, is really the, the major influence on my career when it comes to naturalistic decision-making methods. I mean, I didn't learn this stuff in grad school. I learned this stuff in my VA position, working with Emily Patterson and you, um, you know, I, I didn't learn how to do ethnographic observations in grad school. I learned that through through working with Emily Patterson and, and um, you know, that that project we did to understand barriers and facilitators to to the use of computerized clinical reminders. And so I felt like I had a uh, like a two year postdoc. It wasn't really a postdoc position, but but that's what it felt like, because that's where I really became exposed to naturalistic decision-making. Um, and then um, I had several positions with the VA. I transitioned more to, to this very applied type work, uh, less research. Um, and that, that experience working with VA operations is, is, is what made me who I am today as a researcher because I really got to understand the other side of the fence. I mean, there seems to be this divide between research and operations type work. And so having left a research position to, to do one of these roll up your sleeves type positions with the VA, I got to, to understand that side of the fence and what what's important to, to them. So for example, if you're doing a project for, for VA operations, their timelines are, are so aggressive. I mean, they want a project done in, in 30 days or less. 
not a grant timeline where it takes between six months and three years or something like that. Um, they're, what's important to them, their work performance metrics are completely different. You know, as a researcher, we're evaluated on grant funding and publications and, and, and that sort of thing. None of that stuff is important for operations. And so my advice to someone trying to make that transition is, is to understand the factors that contribute to that research applied work type divide. Um, you know, it's actually my applied experience and relationship with the VA that has largely driven my success in academia because I understand that side of the fence and they've continued to support me ever since I've been here at the university. And I've had a continuous stream of funding from them uh, because I know how to bridge that gap. Wow. Yeah. So not, not many people uh, have actually sat on both sides of that fence, been, been a researcher for the VA and then been part of that operations group. I agree with that. And you're actually one of those people uh, because uh, I've worked with you over the years on both sides of the fence doing uh, grant work, uh, formal research, and doing these, these kind of applied projects with the VA. So, so you, you, you said that this, this kind of unique experience you've had has, has really made your career some ways as an academician. Can you just tell us more about that? How has that informed, I don't know, the, the kind of research you do at the university or the way you teach or, or what has the influence been there? I've relied heavily on small funding projects, a continuous stream of small funding projects with the VA. And, and so this is very applied work. I do have some, some federal grant funding as well, but it's really this, without this steady stream of applied work, I'm not sure how successful I would have been here uh, at University of Louisville. Um, I just went through the, the whole promotion and tenure evaluation. And if you look at my body of work, it's that applied work with the VA, that consistent stream of funding that's been uh, my strong point. So congratulations on getting tenure, by the way. All the votes are, are went my way, so I'm just not uh, ready to put it on social media yet, although I'm talking about it now, so I guess it's uh... <laughs> understand. Sorry if I jumped the gun there. Um, I, uh, but so I, I think... Um, what you're describing, so this this uh, series of small, very applied projects is something that's not always valued by a university. So I think it's cool that you have kind of brought this to the University of Louisville and been able to demonstrate what an important contribution um, these small, very applied projects can be, that it's not not just working at a conceptual level over many years, but actually... Uh, doing work that changes the way healthcare happens is important too. So that's cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, and and I think uh, ideally one would have a blend of those kind of smaller applied projects and and of course larger federal grants. So Jason, do you do you find that the problems differ between the two, um, or or are they all sort of chasing the same ends? It's just you know like you mentioned the timelines and the. Uh, in the funding, but but are you finding different problems on the smaller applied and the larger grant, or are they, or are the problems the same no matter how the research project plays out? It's it's 
the topic interests are the same. It's just the way that the the work is crafted. Um, so if it's more research focused, um, you know, the timeline is going to be larger. If you have a, a, a federal funding on a certain topic, then it's a multi-year project. The, and the topic, so the topic could be, um, I don't know, physician burnout as it relates to the electronic health record. That's a recent uh, uh, topic I've been interested in. A federal grant, it would be, you know, at least a couple years long. If I was working with a, uh, the VA on this topic or, or an applied partner, they don't want to wait two years for, for results, but, but, but they're interested in that topic. And so, um, you know, one thing to do to, to bridge that gap is to have like smaller intermediary deadlines. And so if, if your research, if your partner, if your applied partner, um, you know, needs results quickly, you can craft the larger federal grant to have those intermediary milestones so that you're meeting the needs of your applied partner, um, as well as the, the larger, more conceptual, uh, generalizable research that you're trying to put out to the literature. Um, so you can meet both of those goals. So one other difference I think about, uh, Jason, I don't know if this will resonate with you, but it seems like, um, so on these shorter term projects, um, so, well, let's start in the other direction. So on a long-term project, they might be interested in understanding what are the things that lead to physician burnout and what are some ideas for um, um, adapting electronic health records or documentation practices to reduce that. But on a smaller applied project, they want to know, what's your design? What are we going to do? Is it a training program? Is it a this? And that's what makes me sweat is I feel like there's there's this need for an absolute, like, what are we going to do? And tell me this is going to work. Um, uh, anyway, I, I don't know if that resonates with you. It does. It's, it's about finding a middle ground. Um, you know, it's, you can adjust research study designs, um, to accommodate, um, the, the interests of your applied partner. Um, you can scope a project with intermediary short-term preliminary findings for your applied partner. Um, while you continue to conduct a more in-depth, longer-term research investigation. Um, so I think there's ways to structure a research project so that each part of it delivers actionable, operationally relevant findings uh, for your, your applied partner. Yeah, yeah, that seems like a, a really um, great approach. Um, I, I still think those actionable findings are always going to be the part that make me sweat, but, <laughs> but it's a good, it's an important push. Yeah. So I know that you have um, been a part of a lot of really influential projects over the course of your career. I wondered, is there one that stands out for you as, as maybe the one you're most proud of or the most fulfilling? Yeah, there definitely is one. Um, I, th I feel like as a researcher, lightning might strike once or twice in your career. And um, the one that, that I'm most proud of is um, when I was doing a study on paper-based workarounds to the electronic health record. This is when I was based at the VA. And so I was studying um, workarounds to their electronic record, which is CPRS, the Computerized Patient Record System. It's been around uh, longer than, than most electronic health records. 
And um, this was a, a small pilot study internally funded. Um, and I was just, I didn't want to wait a long time to see if I could get, you know, uh, grant funding for this external funding. I was just really fascinated by why so much paper was being used in the, in the VA hospital that I was based at in Indianapolis. Why is everyone using so much paper when there's a fully electronic health record? And so I designed a study to, to investigate that. And I interviewed all different types of, of clinicians and, and healthcare workers um, about why they were using so much paper. And it was fascinating. You would think you, using a, an electronic health record would reduce the amount of paper. It only creates more opportunities for printing stuff. And they were using paper uh, for, for some really interesting reasons. Um, the most frequent use of paper was just because it was more efficient than, than, than doing something with the computer. Um, they needed paper for uh, reminders to, to, to serve as temporary cognitive memory aids. Um, they, they used paper for what I called sensory motor preferences. They, they liked having something to walk into the patient's room with, to, to handwrite notes down. Um, I had a nurse say, when I hear the, the folder being dropped in my basket, behind me. I know that that patient has checked in. It's that sort of thing is hard to replicate in the electronic health record. I mean, that that nurse could have looked up, um, you know, to see if that patient had checked in. But there's all sorts of steps you need to do that to get to that point in the electronic health record instead of just hearing the, the folder drop in the basket behind you. And that study, when I published that out, it really, really resonated with people and caught fire. You know, most studies, you, you publish something, a few people might be interested in it, um, you know, but lightning kind of struck with this study. It was right around that, that time in the, uh, the Obama administration where there was a big push to transition everyone from paper to electronic uh, records. And so it was really timely too. And um, um, yeah, I did a lot of media interviews about this and, and uh, people were fascinated that, that an electronic health record could lead to so much more paper use. So one of the things I loved about that study and that, that paper is that I, I feel like um, there was this uh, kind of tone um, that, that we want, the goal was to be paperless and that the reason we weren't paperless is because people were stubborn or, um, reluctant to change or, um, yeah, too old <laughs> to really adapt to electronics. Um, and I feel like your paper just, uh, shifted the whole tone of that conversation. Um, and it really resonated with people. Like they knew they were using paper, but they felt sheepish or apologetic about it because the push was not to. And, and, um, by, by highlighting that these were, you know, genuine adaptive strategies that were uh, making healthcare good, uh, that that really shifted the whole tone of that conversation. Yeah, this really goes back to um, uh, Selen and Harper's work 
uh, I think they were based with Xerox, maybe I forget, but they wrote that that famous book, The Myth of the Paperless Office. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I don't even think I realized it at the time I did this study, but it's 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 really a throwback to to their work. I just kind of applied, um, you know, the myth of the paperless office to the hospital system, and, um, you know, the goal is you could by understanding why people are using paper and these paper-based workarounds to the electronic health record, you, we can use that as designers. We can use that knowledge. So is, is this workaround something we can use as a design idea for the next iteration of the electronic health record? Or is this, is this paper process just superior um, and we need to endorse this and, and just formalize it and be aware of it so that we're not creating patient safety issues or gaps in documentation. And so it's, 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 uh, you know, it's multifaceted in, in some ways it is learning to, to live with paper and being okay with that. In other ways, it's, it's using this, this knowledge of paper-based workarounds to, as designers to see, okay, how can we, how can we incorporate that into a better uh, next iteration of the electronic health record? I completely agree. Yeah. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit. I'm wondering um, if you could tell us about some of the folks who have influenced your thinking or inspired you over the course of your career. Well, um, Brian Kleiner would be one of them. He was my PhD advisor at Virginia Tech. And how could your PhD advisor not be one of the, the big, biggest influences on your, your research career? He's a macroergonomics uh, pioneer. Um, uh, and so macroergonomics relies on socio-technical systems theory um, to understand um, uh, organizational design and how to to take a top-down approach to designing all the way down to the the interface level and and so he's the one who really introduced me to those concepts and and uh, I became a big fan of of socio-technical systems theory. Um, Emily Patterson is probably the biggest influence on my uh, career. She is a, a true thought leader in our field, um, uh, especially in naturalistic decision-making. And so, and, and she, she has continued to influence every step of my career. When I, She's been a mentor throughout. I can't say enough about her. Um, and then I would, uh, I would have to say, um, maybe tied for for third most influential would be uh, Richard Frankel and Brad Doubling. Mm. Um, both were senior um, researchers, health services researchers uh, at the the VA Research Center that I was based at in Indianapolis earlier in my career. And uh, they were both um, mentors on my VA career development award, and they brought different things to the table. Richard Frankel is, is, is a, a nas- he's a national treasure. Um, he's, a, he's a medical sociologist. He's, um, I think he's getting ready to retire. He's been around the block. But he has very similar interests, um, you know, 
uh, same same topics of interest, exam room computing, but comes at it from a different perspective. And I know you've worked with Rich and, and you know him well. He's such a thoughtful researcher and I've learned so much from him. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. And then Brad Doubling, he's a epidemiologist um, and uh, uh, informatics researcher and He's the one who actually hired me back into the VA after I'd taken a year off of, of working for the VA. Um, and and uh, that's where I got my research chops. I, I mean, he hired me and I show up and um, he's like, oh, there's a, a center research grant uh, due in two weeks that I want to go for and uh, you're going to help me write the grant and uh, good luck. <laughs> so. <laughs> I felt like uh, I I became seasoned and hardened uh, in that type of research stress working with Brad, and that really carried over to uh, University of Louisville when I went through the the, the tenure track uh, time period. I felt like I had a a running head start, and I, I felt pretty confident um, going through that process. One of the things I really appreciate about Brad was his just ability to put together these amazing teams. Uh, so Mindy Flanagan, um, uh, David Hagstrom. I just I think of uh, the folks that we worked with at that time period when you were at the NDVA, um, and how he you know just brought all these folks together. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah, he had a unique style. Um, I kind of wish. He would. <laughs> he had a tendency to decide to apply for a grant like two or three weeks before it was due, rather than two or three months, like you're supposed <laughs> to. So that part was stressful. But once he made a decision that he was going to go for a grant, he would assemble such an impressive team of diverse people with diverse backgrounds, and I learned so much through those those teams. Yeah, me too. That was cool. Jason, can we go back to your comment about the physician burnout? Uh, it sounds like that's a research path you're pursuing now. Are you far enough along that you could share some insights and, and also sort of suggest where that research is heading? Yeah, that research topic has really blown up uh, in just the last couple of years. Um, I actually presented a paper on physician burnout at the, the recent uh, HFES conference. Uh, that was one of the, the two papers I presented. Um, I, did, I had a, a internal grant funded here at U of L to study physician burnout as it relates to the electronic health record and and clinical workflow here at the university. Uh, working with um, the Department of Family Practice, and um, so I did a, a a small scale study here, and that's what I presented at HFES. Um, this is a real problem. Physician burnout is a it has reached epidemic proportions. I mean, I, I don't I don't remember what the exact statistics are, but I believe even over half of of physicians report uh, some type of factor related to, to burnout in these national surveys. And um, physician burnout is multifaceted. It's caused by a lot of different factors. But one of those factors that I think we can help with as um, you know, human factors, professionals, as, as naturalistic decision-making researchers is, 
is the the burnout that's being caused by the electronic health record and so and and maybe poor clinical workflow and so what i found here um in my study was that um physicians were just overwhelmed with how click heavy their job was everything you know the the sheer amount of documentation that they have to do is just extraordinary and the the electronic health record that they have here doesn't make it any easier it takes so many clicks to get anything done and then and then what they have to document what they're required to document in order to bill is very different than than what they necessarily want to document you know about the patient story and 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 that sort of thing and so there are um there are strategies for reducing burnout as a result of using the electronic health record. Um, the, the use of scribes, for example, has worked well for some. Team-based documentation with uh, a greater role for, for say, medical assistance to, to maybe reduce some of that burden from the physician. Um, uh, working in additional time to document during the day, uh, streamlining documentation expectations and 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 that sort of thing. Um, those are strategies you can do if you still have to deal with a clunky electronic health record. Uh, the best thing you could do is if you've got a a clunky electronic health record is to, is to to replace the whole thing for something that's more usable. But that's easier said than done. I've been I actually have been reading some of this literature uh, recently myself and one of the things that struck me is that the burnout rate among primary care providers is I mean is so much higher than um, other kinds of physicians uh, which makes sense I mean they they are documenting everything preventive care um, um, uh, screenings um, chronic management of chronic conditions um, but but it seems like that that's where this is just a, a crippling problem. Yeah, they're at the front line of care access, right. and so that's that's why I chose to to do my study with with uh, family medicine and and uh, general internal medicine. Um, absolutely. Yeah, that's really important work you're doing. So uh, I so aside from that issue, I'm wondering if there are one or two other big questions or issues in the healthcare community that that the healthcare community is facing uh, that you'd like to see the NDM community address. Yeah, um, I'm really interested in in um, and I have a grant under review with uh, AHRQ right now. Hopefully, it gets funded so I can. I can study this, but I'm really interested in how do we flip the narrative of the the computer, the electronic health record interfering with provider-patient communication. So this has been well studied that uh, you know this is a barrier to provider-patient communication. This is a lot of the the work I did with Rich Frankel um, and others have done, but I don't want to just reduce that barrier, that hindrance to provider-patient communication, I want to actually flip the narrative so that there's an opportunity for the computer, the electronic health record to improve patient engagement and communication. And so I'm proposing to, to study that. I want to simulate different exam room computing configurations here in my lab 
and do some simulated studies on on how to better engage the patient. Use the technology to engage the patient. Um, you know, so have one idea is to have a large screen monitor on the wall so that the provider can selectively project from their laptop what they want to show the patient and discuss with the patient to help facilitate that communication. Or what about giving the, the patient uh, uh, a tablet computer and, and you can do the same thing and, and selectively share with the patient from your laptop uh, certain items to show them and, and discuss. Or, um, you know, the wall-mounted armature system where you can easily reposition the screen um, to show the patient information. I just feel like this is a new trend that we should consider using the electronic health record as a tool to, to educate and engage the patients as a way to promote greater patient-centeredness. So that's what I'm really excited about. Um, and that's what I hope others uh, will be excited about as well. I love this idea. I love this idea. And so another, I think, related issue is just time. Um, so, you know, even if you have a great setup and you can use the computer to engage with the patient, um, we're still just asking physicians to document a lot of stuff they didn't have to document before. Um, and, and, and so there's this tension of getting your documentation done or really connecting with and listening to the patient um, and doing your documentation at night and not spending time with your family. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, I love the way you're kind of flipping that, the, the narrative around there and, and thinking about how we could use the computer to, to support the provider patient relationship or interaction. Um, but I, I just, I feel like we have to find a way for people to have more time <laughs> together. Uh, it's going to be hard to get traction without that. Yeah, that personal connection with the patient is so important to, to most physicians. And, um, but there's that tension, like you said, of all the documentation they have to do. And so some, some try and get a lot of that done while they're with the patient because of that tension. Others refuse to touch a computer while they're with the patient because that, that uh, relationship is so important to them. But we have to find a way to do both. And, and that's the, the crux of this problem here. Some have gotten, some providers have gotten really good at figuring out how to use technology while they're with the patient and, and maintain eye contact and, and maintain that personal connection. But that's what I'm, I'm interested in, finding ways to, to make that easier for the physician so that they can, they can do both. Um, so not just reducing that, that barrier of, of the, the electronic health record, um, hindering that communication and interaction, but, but like I said, flipping the narrative so that it's actually helping with that. So how do we blend, how do we reduce that tension? Yeah, Jason, the other thing you're pointing out is, you know, we've been at this for decades now with the electronic healthcare records and, and this talk already has, has shown all of, 
well, a laundry list of, of the challenges along the way, but um, but there's value in the electronic healthcare record, and and it's it feels like the community is still sort of trying to optimize on that value. I wonder if you could just spend a couple minutes talking through the you know the value that you've seen added as as organizations do introduce these these tools. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to go back to paper, even though clinicians are so burdened with all the electronic documentation and, and all that. No one wants to go back to paper. So the electronic records provide a tremendous amount of value, uh, simultaneous remote access to a patient's record and, 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 and uh, you know, computerized clinical decision support, and the list goes on and on. But um, electronic health records are just notoriously just have poor usability. And it's not just a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, the usability of this electronic health record is terrible. This is a consistent theme, a consistent research finding in the literature across many electronic health records. We just have to get, get better, uh, the, you know, working with the vendors, and, and we just have to get better at, at designing these things. Yeah, it's been, it's been widely observed, uh, and, and as you say, across different uh, you know, contexts. Uh, one other question that I'm kind of thinking about now is you've had this sort of privileged position within the VA, which is, you know, an incredibly large institution in lots of different contexts. I wonder, um, can, can you offer any sort of comparison to those environments, both in terms of the, the findings that you're seeing, uh, but also just the way that you might have gone about your research uh, between VA medical uh, environments and and other you know private or or community based organizations. Have you had those opportunities to to see what that side of the fence is like? Um, well, that's a good point. Most of my research with electronic health records has been with the VA, and of course, as you know, the VA is one of the the very few organizations left that has their own homegrown electronic health record. And, and it's old, it's quite dated. Um, it, but it, you know, it does its job and they've tried, there've been several initiatives over the years to try and replace CPRS. Um, and they've, they've all failed and, and the VA still has CPRS. Of course, they are under contract to, um, uh, go with Cerner. Um, I don't know what the latest with that is, but, but, uh, getting back to your point, um, what was nice about the VA having its own electronic health record and not working with an external vendor is that the, the research you, you did, it, it had a greater chance of being adopted because it was the VA's record. And so if the, if the research findings went to the right people and, and, uh, they were motivated uh, changes could be made. Um, that's harder to do with an external vendor because, I mean, you you've got to be you've got to be smart enough to when you set up. Uh, and I don't have a tremendous amount of experience with uh, um, these these uh, commercial vendors, but you've got to be smart enough when you set up uh, your your contract for their electronic health record to build in things like. Um, uh, allowing for future changes based on on um, 
local contextual needs and, and usability issues, that stuff is usually not in the contract. And so what they give you, you're kind of stuck with it, you know, so that that's a good point. It's it's a different world, um, whether you're working with someone who has their own homegrown electronic health record, which is a dying breed versus these external commercial vendors. And I admittedly don't have a tremendous amount of experience uh, outside of VA. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're pointing out just the, the work that we all do is in this much broader context. And uh, I, me personally, I've, I, you get frustrated in projects um, by some of the challenges, but um, uh, that frustration is mitigated a bit when you realize, you know, you're working in a much larger system and the systems of systems. Um, and I, I do appreciate your point about the opportunity to get ideas and, and fixes and, and, and new designs back into the VA system. Um, I, I think that's particularly um, valuable for, for that community, but it also, you know, from a whatever you call it, decision-centered, user-centered, human-centered design approach, we, we who have worked in the VA do get access to that entire uh, cycle. Uh, and I think it can be really informative um, to, to, to be able to work within that cycle and, and see ideas to design, to formative, to summative, and, and you know, you follow the whole cycle around it. That, that's been particularly enlightening for me, and I'm sure you've seen that yeah, as well. Yeah, and when the VA loses control of that full cycle, when they eventually do switch to uh, Cerner, uh, that's that's going to be a difficult transition because they won't have full control of that cycle. And I, I don't I don't have my pulse on on, you know, the latest when it comes to their their planned transition. But uh, I do worry about that. Well, one of the things I really think is just super cool about the VA is they actually fund research researchers like us to study the problems with the health record um, and then publish them so other health systems can benefit. Um, you know, vendors don't do that. They don't. They don't. <laughs> they don't fund people to find the flaws and then make those visible. Um, and so, I think sometimes the VA gets a bad rap, and part of that is because they're willing to show their flaws in hopes that it's going to help not just the VA but others. Um, so, I just kind of wanted to throw that into the conversation here. I. I I can't think of another entity that would be willing to do that. Yeah, that's in large part to the VA's uh, health services research and development uh, division because they, I mean, research investigators with, uh, with HSRD are required to, to disseminate their findings. Um, and so, and so that's, that's in large part to, to, uh, uh, the research arm of the VA. Although I have seen publications, uh, come out of, uh, VA operations as well. Uh, Brian, uh, actually all, I believe all three of us have been involved with, uh, operations based publications. So there is interest, uh, uh, in, in VA operations and, in, in getting this stuff out as well. All right, back back to NDM. Uh, so we, we've already touched on your sort of multi-methods approach here, uh, but just to focus specifically on NDM, um, and, and I'm wondering if you can think of this, think through this hypothetical with us. 
Uh, so if you were to meet a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM, and on the on the pain of death, you're giving one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM, what would you ask? Are you familiar with Laura Militello's Applied Cognitive Task Analysis <laughs> article from 1998? Because that, uh, I don't... I don't, I'm not sure, I'm sure Laura will be modest here, but that has been such an influential NDM article. And what's, it, it's been cited over 600 times, according to Google Scholar. But what's, what's interesting is it was published in 1998. Uh, it took uh, cognitive task analysis methods and streamlined them for, for hands-on practitioners. And so, you know, NDM can be, pretty abstract stuff. Uh, but here's a paper that took that abstraction and, and made it concrete for practitioners um, to actually use and apply. And what's neat about that paper is that um, it actually didn't really catch fire um, for a while. It had like a, like a, like a, a resurgence. Um, all of a sudden, the healthcare community uh, started using it a lot. Um, and so it wasn't until like, uh, I mean, the first 10 years of that paper, it was cited less than a hundred times. And, and I know, cause I've, it's one of my favorite papers and I like to track it. And then, and then the next 10 years, uh, after it was published, all of a sudden it blew up in the health, especially in the healthcare community. Um, you know, mostly healthcare journals are, are articles are citing it. And, and, and so it's, it's had a huge impact. And, and, uh, so if, if, uh, someone is not familiar with Laura's paper on applied cognitive task analysis, then, um, I'm not, um, I would be suspicious, uh, that they're not a real NDM researcher. This is the first time hearing <laughs> of it. So, uh, uh, Jason, you are a great colleague. Thank you. Um, okay. So now, um, we have one last, uh, fun question. Uh, I'm going to ask you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie. And we're both going to try to guess which is the lie. All right. Um, well, number one, I've attended over 20 Pearl Jam concerts. Number two, I have a rather large collection of uh, jester hats. I love jester hats, you know, the with the bells on them. Uh, you can get them at Mardi Gras and, and uh, I think I have... Uh, over 20 of them. Um, and then number three, I ran and finished a full marathon, but was passed right at the finish line by a guy with one leg on a roller skate with crutches. <laughs> okay. Brian, you want to go first? No. Um, okay. So I do not think you have a collection of jester hats. Okay. Brian's turn. Uh, yeah. I, um, I'm going to go with the Pearl Jam. That one uh, just seems like it's, uh, it's a throwaway. So I'm going to go with that one. Laura guessed the lie. Um, I, act, I do like gesture hats. I just don't have a large collection of them. I think I might might have uh, accumulated one or two over the years. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I love Pearl Jam. I, I have been to over 20 Pearl Jam concerts and was supposed to go to uh, another one uh, this year. But then the pandemic hit and that got shut down. Um, and, and I did run the Pittsburgh Marathon when I was uh, an undergrad at University of Pittsburgh, and it took me over five hours to complete. 
I was dead last in my age group, according to the newspaper the next day. And I did get passed by a guy with one leg on a roller skate at the very end. Uh, he just, you know, he had crutches and wheeled right past me with about 10 yards to go. But I did finish. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for many years, you had a, um, a license plate on your car that said Pearl Jam. Yes. Uh, one, um, one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs. Yeah, it was that was that was on my license plate. Yeah. Oh, well, this has been really fun. Uh, thank you for speaking with us today, Jason. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Um, absolutely enjoyed it. So on that note, uh, thank you all for joining us for the NDM Podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.